Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Terry Foy, the CEO of Inside Lacrosse, to the Philacrosophy podcast. Terry, how you doing, man? Great, Jamie. How are you? Doing well. Fired up to have you on uh, while we're sitting here in quarantine. It's always good to be able to get our mind off things and talk a little across. Yeah, I mean, obviously for me, that's not really getting my mind off of what I'm thinking about all day, every day. But certainly given, yes, the presence of a global pandemic that is disrupting you know, pretty much everything about our society and civilization, it is uh, always good to be able to do something productive uh, around this, this sport that we love. So Monday, the NCAA announced that they are going to uh, give a waiver for everybody that was in college to be able to get a year back. Um, it's going to have hu- huge ramifications on so many different levels, and I would really just love to hear your thoughts on this. And I know that's going to be that's a pretty open-ended question and might have a long answer, but I'm prepared and I can't wait to hear your opinions. I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university-branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the Air Gate? Well, that was me in goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at axiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. Well, yeah, so I mean, I think it starts with, um, well, it it starts either with the most bureaucratic response or the most emotional response. Uh, The bureaucratic answer is shorter, so I'll start there. Essentially, what the NCAA did was made their lives a whole lot easier because had it not been for this blanket waiver, then it would have meant that every athlete over the course of the next four years would be able to apply individually for an additional year of eligibility on what was the existing basis of not having gotten to complete their season by virtue of a factor that was outside of their control. So whether it's financial injury or whatever else, you know, it's essentially equivalent to the, what I think at this point is pretty, pretty familiar medical hardship waiver. And so the NCAA essentially said, instead of individually hearing the cases of, you know, whatever it is, 300,000 athletes, we're just going to say every athlete. um, And obviously, you know, D2, the D2 ruling had already come down. D3 rules are different anyway. So it was really just Monday's news was about division one. So that number is a lot smaller than 300,000. But whatever the number was, instead of hearing each individual waiver claim, we're just going to say every spring sport athlete um, has an additional year of eligibility uh, by our purposes. So that manifests itself in a bunch of different ways, depending on the conference or the university that we're talking about and what their individual policies are. And the other element of the way in which the NCAA made their lives a lot easier is that they put a lot of flexibility and responsibility back, back onto the schools. And so you can imagine a scenario in which they would have said, um, no, you can't bring any of your athletes back. Uh, that would have been really onerous and really 
resisted both publicly in terms of people thinking that it was the the wrong decision ethically, um, but then also privately in the sense that there are schools and and athletic departments and teams and coaches that want to bring their athletes back. Uh, so they gave them the flexibility to do so, but they also didn't mandate that they had to do so and or mandate that they had to bring them back with the level of financial aid or athletic aid that they had previously been getting. They basically said that you know the NCAA's the NCAA as an organization is, is membership-based, and their primary objective is to create a playing field that is fair and equitable among its members, at least as much as possible. And so in an effort to try to keep the, the playing field as level and fair as possible, you know, one, one of the things they have to control for are the allocation of scholarship dollars. And so what they said was, the policy we're going to enact is that for members of the class of 2020, college seniors in 2020, if you come back to your institution you are allowed to access the scholarship dollars that you are accessing this year or less. And the reason that they need, they gave them the flexibility to offer less is because there's an actual real financial burden to these schools, but you can't offer more because they don't want to, that would tip the, the scales a little bit competitively. And if you transfer, you count, okay, hold on. I, I didn't say one important thing, which is you can come back and access the same level of, of financial or scholarship aid, and it won't count against your team's scholarship limit. So for men's lacrosse, that's 12.6 scholarships. For women's lacrosse, that's 12 scholarships. So for example, if the senior class of you know whatever institution, Monroe University, comes back and uh, and the whole group had three scholarships spread out across 10 guys, then that means that de facto Monroe University would be able to have 15.6 scholarships on their roster next year. Now, at another university, they might say, uh, we don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the budget to be able to afford that. So instead of you guys splitting up three scholarships, we're going to offer you two to split up. They can then choose to take that or not. But if you transfer and you go somewhere else, then whatever scholarship you get counts against that team's 12.6. And so the reason they made that decision is because with National Letters Intent already having been signed in the fall, incoming players, meaning guys that are member of the college class of 2024, already had a commitment on what their financial commitment, or they already had a guarantee on what their financial commitment was going to be. And so they couldn't disrupt that. And so that was essentially the compromise or the solution that they came to. And, you know, the ethical question is, do you think it was fair? Do you think it was justified? Do you think it was right? And, you know, the majority of the people that I spoke with have said, yes, I think that college athletes deserve another year of eligibility. But the practical implications are numerous and hard to negotiate. And so as a result, you know, it's a complicated situation. And each school and each conference is going to, you know, make the choices as they see fit or as they are capable of. And, uh, and then we'll go from there. And so that's where we find ourselves. To be, uh, just to be clear, then, this class, this college class of 2020 can come back the scholarships that they were on at their own institution do not count against the 12.6 for next year, but then subsequent years, the class of 21 and so on, will have to count against the 12.6. So in a way, this senior class got, because of the commitments of the national letters intent of the high school 2020s, this senior class has a little bit of an, an advantage on, 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 on money um, than the rest of the classes would have from here on out. Right. And I think the idea there is that with the additional year, coaches will have time to prepare for what those contingencies are. 
yeah. and allow for. And it doesn't put as much strain on budgets as it would if the subsequent three classes that were affected by this also didn't have their additional year count against the scholarship limit. Okay, so the Ivy League has come out and said, um, well, what have they said? It looked like they, <laughs> said they were not going to uh, allow for uh, fifth year students to be in school or grad students to compete um, without the traditional way of doing it in the Ivy League, which like Rob Pennell, you take two falls off and then you can play an extra spring. Um, but then, then the, the a Yale AD seemed to maybe contradict that. What's your, what, what are you reading from this and what, what are your ex expectations? So there's an important distinction between the two scenarios that you laid out. There is a difference between fifth year and grad student. Yeah. And so my understanding is that the Ivy League presidents held a vote on Thursday where they affirmed what had been a longstanding principle. I would call it a rule. I don't know if it's written down. Yeah. I'm sure it's written down somewhere that grad students are not eligible. And so essentially what they said was, we're going to hold firm on that grad students will not be eligible in 2021. There was one interpretation that suggested that that meant that fifth year players like this year's seniors would not be eligible next year. But what Vicky Chun, the AD at Yale tweeted um, and what my conversations with other Ivy league coaches yielded on Thursday afternoon was that a, that was expected. That ruling was expected from the Ivy yep. league. Coaches. So it didn't come as a surprise. And B the, what has been sought after for the last two weeks among Ivy League coaches and athletic directors is an undergraduate solution. So there are a lot of different ways that that could get sliced. You mentioned the withdrawal opportunity or option, right. you know, which would be um, to withdraw right now so that your spring 2020 doesn't count, your fall 2020 doesn't count, and your spring 2021 does count, and then you would graduate at the end of spring 2021. Right. That is um, in order to, to stay within the eight semester rule, which is basically that you are only allowed to have eight semesters worth of athletic competition. If you have exhausted eight semesters of, of undergraduate, then you can't participate in Ivy League athletics. So like, for example, one of the potential contingencies or one of the available options would be to modify temporarily that eight semester rule to 10 semesters which would mean that you would still have to be an undergrad, but you could be an undergrad for five years and right. you could build an academic component or an academic plan that would still provide value while being an undergrad for five years, which a lot of people are. Um, and so those are the types of that and other ideas similar to that are what is currently being explored as a potential available outcome for these uh, Ivy League student athletes. Well, that would be good because withdrawing is just throwing a lot of money out the window. <laughs> it is for this semester. Now, I, I mean, that cuts both ways, right? Because if the idea is that you would allow, I mean, first and foremost, you're probably going to have to drop at least a class or two in order to not essentially qualify for graduation. So I don't know what the rules are at these institutions right. in terms of whether or not you can qualify for graduate and graduation and not graduate. Um, like, is there kind of like a lever that you have to pull after you have qualified or are you automatically put into the queue for graduation and you don't have any control over it? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that if you withdraw, yeah, obviously you're wasting the money that you would have already spent for the spring of 2020, but then you would just skip spring of 20 or fall of 2020, right? So you're right. not paying that. Whereas no. if like the, if the, if the 
solution that they come to is that you have to be enrolled for 10 semesters, then you're adding an additional half year that you wouldn't otherwise have had to have paid. So again, I mean, it, you know, it, it's, it's nuanced, it's complicated, and it cuts both ways. And if you're on a lot of financial aid, it may not as big, be as big of an impact than if you were a full pay. Um, 100%. What about the uh, Patriot League? What's your guess on that? So it's not a guess. I've got clarity, and I just haven't had time to write it yet. Uh, okay. the, so, so breaking news, you're lucky here, James. Um, so the, there was no vote. The league office issued a memo that reiterated or, or restated an existing rule that essentially leaves the responsibility for handling an additional year of eligibility up to the schools. And so, um, you know, it's kind of a school by school choice. We, you can, you know, you know very clearly what the service academy's stance or approach or policy or choice is going to be. And then, you know, I think that when you subtract those two, there are eight remaining schools. Um, Seven of them play men's lacrosse. All of them play women's lacrosse. Um, From my intel, uh the vast majority are going to um are not going to welcome back uh players for an additional year um by virtue of of grad school or whatever else the case might be um but uh a a handful will and um i'm going to save that for the article uh but you can probably infer on the basis of academic profile type of institution the degree to which they value spring sports which ones those are all right. Well, that is great. That is great um, information to have. Thanks for that. Um, all right. Let's talk a little bit about the ramifications for the Ivy League and the Patriot League that are not going to be able to have these fifth-year athletes, as well as the competitive advantages and disadvantages as it relates to on-field and recruiting, since there's going to be some down-the-line um, impact. Sure. I mean, is there a particular place that you'd like to start or just yeah, generally Yeah, so let's speaking? start with, I mean, obviously, you know, not being able to have five classes when everybody else does is a disadvantage. It is. I think that advantage to at least some degree is offset by the fact that uh, at least for members of the class of 21 and potentially for guys that are in the 20 class, the PG, those are going to be really appealing destinations to go to because you're not entering an ecosystem that has as many, you know, as many competitors in front of you. So, you know, that might be a little bit of a contrarian opinion, but it is one that I do think is true. I mean, I think, you know, kind of to set a baseline, for lack of a better way of putting it, like, I don't think there's, this is not a one size fits all situation. Like, and not only that, but it's also very evolving. So for example, you know, one of the things we've heard is that one of the conferences is not going to allow its members to go about, go beyond 12.6. So, you know, there we have a new, we have a new determination or, or opinion or piece of evidence that suggests, well, maybe this isn't going to be as much of a competitive advantage as we thought. We don't know what, how, how different programs have allotted scholarships within both the class of, you know, the, the high school class of 2016 and the high school class of 2020. Like, for example, if you're, if you're a group that goes, six scholarships, zero scholarships, six scholarships, zero scholarships, six scholarships. Well, then you could de facto have 18 scholarships on your roster next year. Whereas if you're a group that goes three scholarships every year, you're only going to have 15, right? And so like the, the nuanced differences in terms of the way in which things unfold um, are going to be so disparate that I feel like it's really hard at this point in time to try to say, this group or the, you know, this conference or this team or whatever benefits. And this one does not, this one is injured. Um, you know, and, and so I think 
what this is set up as, and I was, I was talking to Ty Sanders about this last night, is this is like the first time college lacrosse has ever experienced a moment of free agency where yeah. the, the, the status and the rate at which things are going to change are, is so fast and so significant that like, that's why Ryan Tierney, we already know Ryan Tierney is coming back. We know Grant Amenta is not coming back. We know that three of Ohio State's players are coming back in um, uh, Ryan Tarafanko, Jeff Henrik, and uh, one other whose name is escaping me right now. Trailer that, Yeah, Trailer Claire. Uh, we know that Josh Kiersan and Christian and Tome are in the transfer portal. Um, we know that Mac O'Keefe is coming back. Uh, so there's, you know, we know that Michael Sowers wants to come back. We know that TD Erland wants to come back, but he's only going to do so if he goes to Yale. Uh, we don't know who isn't coming back, um, you know, aside from, uh, you know, a couple of guys who, who are talking about NLL draft prospects or, or whatever the case might be. So, yeah, I mean, I think that more than anything else, um, if you want to get down to like, does Virginia benefit from this? Does Duke benefit from this? Like, I don't know, is, is really the only answer to the question that I can, I can say. Yeah. Well, the reason why I think that there's going to be a definite benefit for the schools that can acquire free agents is because they're more known quantities. And so, and they're, and they're more, more mature. Um, you know, let's just assume that most of them are going to be fifth year guys. Um, that are looking for a home and you're going to know who they are. You're going to know how they play. You're, they're going to be 22 or 20, 23 years old or 24 if they were a reclass when they come in. Um, and so as opposed to a freshman coming in now, without a doubt, the reason why I asked the, the recruiting component part of the question was because I think it is going to be more attractive to be able to go to a more stable. Yeah. There's going to be four classes, you know, and they're going to recruit nine or 10 players at, Harvard, Yale, or Princeton in the Ivy League or Patriot League. And I think that will help their recruiting. Um, but I think on the downside, it, 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 you know, to be able to, you need a face-off guy, you can go get one. You know, you need whatever position you really need, you can probably go find a known quantity. So I'm not sure if there's a definite uh, answer to that, but I think that I think I would like to have the option of some free agency if I was coaching. Okay, so maybe I misinterpreted your question then, but like – what is the value of being able to accept transfers versus the value of being able to keep your fifth years coming back? Right. And it seems like what we've heard so far is I don't necessarily think there's a disproportion between Ivy league seniors that want to come back and non Ivy league seniors that want to come back. But, and obviously we're really only talking about the Ivy league and Patriot league schools that can't accept inbound transfers. Yeah. The, and, and not only that, but also they can't accept upper you know like grad grad transfers basically it doesn't mean that they're not going to be beneficiaries relative to underclass transfers to the degree that we've already seen there yeah. is some you generally don't or- see much of that in the ivy league td ireland and uh, the Penn faceoff guy are two examples that were kind of you know aberration if you look at the history of the ivy league but what i'm saying is is not only can you keep your fifth years you can also get fifth year transfers and that's the free agency piece and so for sure yeah, I'm not trying to argue that it's an advantage yeah. for the Ivy Leagues. I'm just trying to say that, like, we don't know yet how much of a disadvantage it is because we don't know whether they're going to be able to keep their fifth-year guys. We don't know whether if they can't keep their fifth-year guys, those guys are going to go try to play somewhere else. And we also don't know who's going to be t- able to take in these transfers. Yeah, right. And we don't know what the money's going to be like. I mean, the one thing about these fifth-year people, if you were going to get a graduate degree, chances are you were going to pay for it anyway. Uh, So any type of scholarship that you're able to generate uh, might be helpful as far as the way somebody might look at uh, a graduate degree. Um, One thing thing that I do think is a worthy point there, though, is 
when is this decision going to, when is the impact of this decision going to be felt the most? Because I think right now, the most urgent consideration, right, is like, what are rosters going to look like next year? But between what you pointed to, which is the impact on recruiting, and what I think is a really important factor, which is that you're going to see it, I, I predict, that the value of time is higher than the value of the emotional loss of losing your senior season. And what that means is that current junior sophomores and freshmen are going in my, I'm guessing are going to take the additional year of eligibility at a rate higher than current seniors. Agreed. Because they have time to plan in a way that makes it make sense for them financially and, and academically. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there's going to be, and we might as well talk about it now. I mean, the trickle down, you know, I had a, I did a podcast with Ty and we, we talked about this also. Um, but, you know, you're going to be less likely to take and spend all your money and take a class and fill up your spots when you know you're going to have fifth years and potential transfers coming in. Right. So just to make the numbers really round, and we know that these are low, but let's just assume that there's 10 guys in a class. And then we have to make an assumption around how many guys we expect to come back. And, you know, in, in the conversations that I've had, and I've, I talked to coaches that, you know, really span the rankings from number one to number 75. And I don't know how many guys are going to come back, but I, I know that it's not going to be 10 in every class. No. And it's probably going to be closer to like somewhere between two and five. And so obviously there's a huge difference between two and five, but the trickle down effect is that if two come back, that means that the next three classes where they would have been 10 are now going to be eight, right? And when you multiply that across 75, that means that you're looking at essentially the reduction of 140 to 150 spots in the aggregate of division one. But it, the number is actually higher than that because like I said, the average roster size is 47. So it's really close to like going from 10 to 12 or 12 to 10. Yeah. Um, and in which case it's more like 200 spots per class, per class here. But if it's five, then that's like, I mean, that's half, right? That's half of the group. So I think that ultimately, you know, we'll, we'll have a much better sense of how impactful this is 18 months from now, because I think there's a reasonable expectation that what the, cl- the college class of 2021 does is equivalent to what we're going to see the classes of 22 and 23 do. But like if in the fall, when we know how many, members, how many current seniors came back, that's not going to be very indicative going forward. Um, because like I said, the amount of time that the underclassmen have to make these decisions is going to be really valuable towards yielding the subsequent result. No doubt. And I think you're right on. I think there's, you know, coaches aren't going to want more than five. I don't think they're just not going to be able to handle it on a lot of levels. Um, but they are going to be wanting to fill needs and they're going to want their best players back and they're going to want transfers. And don't forget there's going to, there are going to be transfers from all divisions you right. know, somebody that graduates is like, I was, you know, player of the year or a All-American at uh, Division three school. Like, that's so like, you know what, I would love to go play Division one and take a crack at it and, um, you know, and, and get a degree at the same time. So I, I, I think it's going it, to, it is, it's going to be pretty, uh, it's going to be pretty impactful. And I agree the planning is you're going to, you're going to recruit a couple less spots, probably at a minimum. Um, there's a lot of attrition going on anyways, too. So it may not be as big as we think because there's so much attrition anyway. I mean, it's funny because everybody will tell you they're done recruiting. And then if you ever talk to a coach in like April or May, 
<laughs> but oftentimes looking for something, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and so that, 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 that happens and that's going to continue to happen. And it may happen even more as it gets more competitive, frankly, there may be people that are like, you know what, I'm never going to play. I'm not going to play. So, you know, uh, who knows? Um, but, uh, but I do think uh, people are going to be a little bit uh, quicker to save some money knowing that there's going to be transfers coming down the pike. Right. Um, I want to talk about, I saw a tweet that you put out yesterday um, relative to college athletics potential, the impact of this whole pandemic on the finances and how that is going to play out um, for institutions across the country with the basketball tournament being canceled with the potential of football um, not being playing out the way it, it would have. Um, yeah. on the sport of lacrosse. Yeah. Um, all right. So, you know, uh, I'm just trying to figure out how to frame this because, you know, first and foremost, it felt, I had a bunch of people ask me immediately. They're like, Oh, who's dropping lacrosse. And I was like, no, that's not what this is about. This is an aggregate reaction to folks that were sending me articles. Cause I think the way that, you know, I'm being perceived on Twitter right now and I'm okay with this is kind of like a champion or an advocate for the value of having a lacrosse team on campus financially. And, um, you know, I, I, I am coming at this on the heels of a project that I was working on privately, whereby I was kind of developing the argument for why lacrosse, men's and women's lacrosse, is, is fiscally prudent for most universities, and particularly most universities of specific profile, where enrollment, male enrollment, and tuition dollars are important and not to be taken for granted. And, um, and so as these articles circulate and rightfully show the revenue reduction that college athletics is going to see both by virtue of the uh, smaller dispersal from the NCAA on, by, by virtue of canceling the men's basketball tournament and all the other ramifications that have, had, that have come, you know, my, my whole point is that when the athletic department examines you know, cost cutting measures, dropping lacrosse is an illogical thought. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that I've heard that that's what people are going to do. But in these articles, it's being said that examining cutting sports is one of the routes that these athletic administrators are going to take. And my argument is simple, like, yeah, I'm not expecting that universities are going to drop football or basketball. But pretty much, I mean, every Division One university has to have 12 sports. That's, I mean, you cannot be a Division One university and not have 12 sports, which means that if you have men's and women's lacrosse and then football and men's and women's basketball, well, that's five, which means you've got seven others that you could potentially consider before cutting men's and women's lacrosse. And I realize that men's and women's lacrosse tend to be more expensive than a lot of other sports, rowing or swimming or golf or tennis or whatever. Um, but my point is that it's not just about the cost line. It's also about the revenue line. Yeah. But the problem is that within a lot of athletic departments, it's not about the revenue line, or at least the revenue line relative to tuition. The only, the only revenue that they're able to count or reconcile is tickets, sponsorship, broadcast, if that exists. And even in the instances in which it does exist, well, lacrosse is going to be ahead of a lot of those other sports that I said. So in that regard, probably not the first one to consider cutting, but maybe it is because it is more expensive. But when you're either a private school or a, a, a public school with a large out-of-state tuition fee, and you account for the amount of tuition dollars that lacrosse is driving, 
currently and then you also account for what it could drive if you were able to change if you were to change some of your financial aid and non-athletic aid policies then i just think that you know there's no other sport that can drive the tuition dollars that lacrosse does and i realize that you know that can be refuted by in a number of ways so um you know one for example 1a football is it a scholarship limit of 85 and a tuition, I'm sorry, a roster cap of uh, 125, which means you can have 40 walk-ins. Now, not very many programs do, if any. Um, and of those, the question that I have is where does the, where does the need distribution, the need, the need-based aid distribution compare to lacrosse, right? Because I suppose there's a degree to which it doesn't matter whether the government's coming from, or the money's coming from the family or the federal government. But the, the, the question is, you know, like who are bringing in or how much are we bringing in intuition dollars? Um, and, you know, I think my broadest, like the very top of my argument is if this situation disrupts the financial landscape of college athletics in a way that many are forecasting that it will, then it is time to reexamine the way in which these colleges and universities tend to account for their athletic department which is yeah. it's an external entity in most instances except for the times that it's really convenient to count it as an internal entity and by virtue of treating it like an external entity oftentimes tuition is not applied to it so you know that's my main point um but you're obviously your experience has been a lot closer to it than mine so um i'm open to your or interested in your thoughts as well well i think you make a great point and i know that you were preparing to talk to a you know, uh, talk to a bunch of institutions about why adding lacrosse is, is, is smart and, and obviously full pay tuitions uh, is huge. And so I think you made the point of there's an average of 47 um, uh, on the NCAA Division One men's lacrosse rosters. Um, and if there's 12 scholarships, that leaves 35 basically full pays. Um, so at the University of Tampa, they have a JV program because they actually have even more full pays. And it's part of the yeah. reason why they have that is so that they can bring in more full pays. And that's what, that was an initiative by the University of Tampa and uh, Coach Whipple to be able to like help their discount rate. And that's what it's called in, in these, um, in these at, at least at the University of Denver, they would call it the discount rate. It has to be a certain level um, as it relates to all of the kind of aids that they, that they have. Um, certainly, it's going to be harder to get need-based financial aid at, at at certain schools moving forward, and therefore, I think that they're going to they're going to welcome uh, that. You're right, and I think that ultimately, yes, this is a and and in, in talking with a couple of athletic administrators last night uh, and just asking for their feedback on that, you know, one of the things that was clear is that it was difficult for them to wrap their head around the fact that, like, yeah, this is this is a common practice, Division two and Division three. And my point is that in the changing landscape of college athletics, this might be, this might have to be a practice for the division one level because there are so many unknowns. Like prior to this experience, college administrators were already forecasting a downward dip in enrollment by virtue of the birth rate declining temporarily from like 2008 to 2012 because of the great recession. And so if this compounds that, right? Like if the combination of the economic climate by virtue of the changes due to coronavirus, and then also the kind of suppressed demand on the on higher education because of the experience with remote learning. Like if you see junior college and other types of remote learning opportunities skyrocket as a result of this, would you be surprised? Because I wouldn't. You know, right. that being said, I don't think the bottom's going to fall out of enrollment in 
brick and mortar institutions. I just think that they're going to find challenges that they previously didn't. And, and the crux of the point is in that instance, in that scenario, the value of programs that require on-campus attendance increase relative to the general student population. So that's athletics, it's drama, it's art, it's music, it's all the other extracurricular activities that you can't get the same level of experience out of when you're not there. And the point is, you have to spend, depending on where you're at, millions, if not tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on your football team. And you have, like, like I said, about 100 guys on the roster, 85 of which are on scholarship. You have 47 guys on your men's lacrosse team. It's the second largest roster in college athletics. And you have 12 scholarships in order. You, like it costs the university the equivalent of 12 enrollees. I'm sorry, it costs the athletics department the equivalent of 12 enrollees in order to fund that program. And that's such a huge delta that yeah. I just, I can't understand why more athletic administrators aren't able to make that argument to their universities yeah. relative to the value of men's lacrosse on campus. And then subsequently the value of women's lacrosse because it is like probably the third or fourth largest delta between the number of uh, tuition dollars that it drives. Totally. And then of course, we didn't even touch on fundraising. Exactly. Which is yeah, well, and really like, I mean, fundraising and intuition go hand in hand too, because, you know, really ultimately, this is so tough to talk about because you feel like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, right? I've been a staunch advocate for the fact that, you know, the perception, the social perception, the socioeconomic perception of lacrosse is a, is a hindrance and it needs and it should change, right? Not necessarily just because of access, meaning that like, it shouldn't be that you have to be rich to play, but right. that's, a, that's, a, that's a math problem. That is something that can be solved. There's another problem where lacrosse is only for rich kids. That's something that certain members of the United States or certain citizens believe, right? And so you have to attack both of those problems. But when that perception or, or uh, stereotype persists and to the degree to which it's true, it is also logical to try to take advantage of it, right? And so the point is that not every lacrosse player that can pay $50,000 a year to a 10-year school and be a part of your Division One program is also going to be able to donate a million dollars over the course of, um, you know, the time that they're there, although some can. Yeah. The point is that there's, you know, you use Tampa as an example there's 75 guys on division two and division three rosters that are paying 30 to 45 grand who would do that at a division one roster if they had the opportunity to do so. So my point is that there is no sport whereby the demand of potential full pay tuitions exceeds the supply of spots right. as division one men's lacrosse. So the, it's not just about the argument around this is prudent. It's also the argument around certainty, right? So like, the likelihood that all of that goes away is mitigated in comparison to other sports. So interesting. All right, last topic. I want to talk a little bit about summer. I know we don't yeah. really know what's going to be happening, but, um, but I want to just um, maybe speculate a little bit and, and find out what you're hearing about, you know, okay, so June, you know, I've heard from a, a few guys that are uh, run club organizations that the beginning of June is not looking good the end of the June, they, they think is going to be in play. 
we've got NCAA dead periods, you know, extended till the end of May right now by college coaches. Who knows how long the NCAA will keep that going? Do we think that there will be an opportunity for lacrosse to go into August and those dead periods to be lifted? Um, any thoughts on all of the above? Sure. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, just kind of full disclosure, I suppose, Inside Lacrosse Invitational is set to start on June 29th in Howard County, Maryland. Um, Howard County Parks are closed through April 30th as of now. Um, we're in communication with them about alternative dates should we feel like we can't host that event on June 29th. Um, to this point, you know, we've communicated to our prospective attendees that we're moving forward to proceed as schedule, um, primarily because then, you know, there's so much intel, there's so many opinions around what the arc of this experience is going to be. Um, but ultimately, every opinion starts with a caveat of we don't know. And, you know, my point of view is that we are far enough out where I don't feel like we have to make a decision. Um, so, you know, not to say that there isn't value in being proactive. And, you know, the NAL group was proactive in rescheduling their event from, I believe, the second week in June to the last week in July. Yeah. Um, you know, that was prudent in the sense that it's still within the recruitable window, but it gives them the most possible time to reallocate their event. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that one of the factors to consider is not just, uh, you know, uh, desired travel or, or openness of, of crossing state lines and everything else that's currently in place. You know, it's also if school goes back into session, how late are schools going to go? Um, and, you know, is there a resumption of plastic sports? So a lot of competing factors around which there's relatively little that's currently known. And so, you know, I think that that's kind of why people are making the decision that they're, they're making, which is, you know, we got to wait and see. Um, the one thing you brought up that I do think is interesting is the idea of if the NCAA dead period extends to say June 15th, would men's lacrosse consider requesting a uh, exception to their recruiting calendar this year that extends the, or, you know, kind of um, extends the, the recruitable window um, to August 15th. And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think that the powers that be have considered uh, or, or certainly have communicated what their stance or opinion would be uh, to other groups. So all that being the case, um, you know, one of the questions that arises that I, I'm curious about and I think is important is, you know, is it viable to run an event during a dead period or during a non-recruitable window? Um, is there enough of an appetite to compete and to uh, develop video that can be evaluated um, and shared with coaches uh, that it overcomes the fact that there won't be coaches sitting on the sidelines? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, all these things are, are worthy of consideration and thought. Um, but to your first point, yeah, no real yeah. way to know the answer. I, I'll tell you what, to, 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 to your last question, of, do I think that it would be viable to run an event in August during a dead period? I would say that uh, depending on how much of the summer we lose, I would say absolutely. People are going to want to play. They're going to need to play. I mean, you know, all, all these kids have lost, uh, all these high school kids. You know, the college kids have lost it, but they're getting it back. The high school kids aren't, right? And yeah. they have to figure out a way to do it. I wonder how that's going to affect, you know, fall sports, you know, I mean, are people going to be like, I just, I really need to play lacrosse. I didn't get to play. Um, are clubs going to ramp up what they're doing? Um, you know, it's. Uh, or is it going to go the other way? Because if you were, you know, a soccer lacrosse player and you just lost, you had a good sophomore soccer season, you just lost your sophomore uh, lacrosse season, do you decide, all right, I'm going to quit lacrosse to focus on soccer. 
<laughs> soccer soccer never lets you play lacrosse anyways terry so probably <laughs> a moot point <laughs> tell um, that to ryan conrad yeah true i mean there's private school kids can do it but the clubs and club guys can't do it um always a pleasure talking to you on this stuff and this uh in this weird time that we're in um your insights and um and uh, finger on the pulse of the lacrosse world is uh, awesome to listen to. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Hey, have a great weekend. You too, man. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I want to make sure that the coaches and parents who are listening know about the JM3 content resources. I've created the deepest and most comprehensive digital content for coaches and players that can be found anywhere on the internet. If you're a coach and you want to engage your staff and your team, if you're a parent and you need a plan for your kids, check out the seven-day free trial at jm3sports.com slash free trial. I think you'll love it, and it's a great solution.